0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Good morning. Thank you, Nancy, for reading. Worship team for leading us today. It is indeed a beautiful day and a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, we are looking at that passage this morning, and uh, before we uh, pray and jump right into it, I just wanted to make sure folks saw the announcement in the bulletins about uh, baptisms. So we have a baptism, we're doing baptisms on March 17th. We have uh, two people already who've told us they want to be, so uh, if anyone else is interested, just talk to me or Paul, and uh, we'll, we'll get you engaged with that. So that's coming up on the 17th of March. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump into this text. Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us here today. Thank you for the strength and, and uh, the faith, uh, the strength to be here and the faith to want to be here. And uh, we just praise you for that today. Uh, Lord, we want to invite you by your Holy Spirit to uh, soften our hearts, uh, make us receptive to whatever you have for us today. And uh, we invite your Holy Spirit to search us and to to, to cause us to see ourselves in this passage and just to understand what you're saying to us here and to feel the encouragement and the challenge that's here. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. About 600 years ago in China, a military commander named Wang uh, Shouqi, Wang Shouqi, my Chinese is not good, uh, He was this man was given an important assignment And uh, Mr. Wang had uh, taken part in a battle. He'd been part of a a battle against the Mongols up in the north, and uh, this was one of the many times when the Mongols were trying to invade China, and uh, the Chinese held them at bay. The, The Chinese were successful. It was an important strategic victory for them at that time. Now, the word needed to get back to the capital. This was during the Ming Dynasty. The capital had just been moved to Beijing from another place, And they needed to get word back about this victory. And of course, they didn't have the electronic communication we have today. And and so they had to send somebody. Somebody had to go to tell the emperor in person about this victory. And the the commanding general chose Wang, chose him to go and deliver the good news. So he did. He went back to Beijing. Beijing did what he was told to do. He uh, was ushered into the presence of the emperor. And he gave him the good news. The Mongols were stopped. Now, everything I've told you so far is pretty routine. Uh, here's where it gets interesting. Uh, you would expect the emperor to be thankful to Wang for bringing this good news, uh, maybe even reward him somehow for, for doing this, but that is not what happened. Uh, instead, uh, there must have been some more backstory to all of this, because what, well, the emperor interpreted all of this as a, as a threat. Apparently, Wang was already a pretty successful military commander. He had already had a growing popularity with the people. And so when he brought this good news to the court, the emperor interpreted it as a personal threat. And so he demoted him. He actually, uh, Wang, who, uh, who had risen up in the ranks, he demoted him, stripped him of his rank, and sent him into exile. And that was the end of it. It was no more is heard of his career, all because he brought the good news to the emperor. His experience reminds me a little bit of what happens to Jesus in the passage we're looking at today. Uh, Like Huang, Jesus brought good news. He brought good news to his own people. He brought good news to his hometown, to Nazareth, and they rewarded him by trying to kill him, as you just heard. Uh, In this passage, uh, Jesus begins his public ministry. So in the larger narrative of what's going on in Luke, that's how you read this. This is the beginning. It's the launch, if you will, of his public ministry. Uh, It's not actually the first ministry Jesus has done. Uh, I'll show you in the text where it says that in just a minute. He's already been doing some ministry in the region. Uh, But Luke kind of ignores that stuff, which you can read about in the other Gospels. He kind of just briefly reports it, and he actually begins the story of the ministry of Jesus Christ here in Nazareth, in Jesus' hometown. And one of the reasons Luke does this is that the events in Nazareth show us something very important. They, they show us why Jesus came, which is, is what we're going to talk about today, because this is how Jesus introduces his ministry. And here in the, this passage, he introduces it by announcing that he has come to proclaim good news. He has come to announce, to proclaim the good news. Now that's why he's there. And so we're going we're gonna to focus on the good news today. Uh, And we're going to do so by asking three questions. There are three questions that this passage answers specifically about the good news. And so we're going to ask these three questions that the passage answers about good news, the, the good news, the gospel is the word. And these questions are important because they tell us two things about the good news. Uh, They tell us, first, what the good news is. And so we're going to define it here at the outset. What is the good news that Luke is is about, or what Jesus has come to bring? What is the good news? And then, second important question is, how are human beings going to respond to it? And so very early in the gospel of Luke, we're going to set this foundation. Here's There are two ways to respond to the gospel of Jesus, and we're going to see them both in today's passage, and then we'll see them again and again and again as the gospel unfolds, as as Luke unfolds. So three questions that are helping us understand two important things about the good news. Let's, Let's take a look at these three questions. All right, question number one. The first question is, what is it? What is the good news? And, and this is a great place to start because Luke starts there. Uh, what is the good news Jesus came to proclaim? The answer uh, is that the good news is salvation through Jesus. Salvation through Jesus—that's the good news, according to this introductory this introductory sermon uh, that we have uh, ri- written here. So uh, let's pick up with our text. We'll start where Nancy started, verse fourteen. Uh, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So, uh, last time we were in Luke, the passage immediately before was the temptation passage. Uh, and for the, and so when the temptation down in Judea ends, that's down in the southern part is actually where that happens, that wilderness desert region to the east of Jerusalem and the south of, of Jerusalem. Uh, after that, Jesus goes back up north, He goes back to Galilee. Uh, and he begins to, to, to preach, he, and Luke specifically tells us he was teaching, and he was, he was, his teaching was well-received in that region. Uh, the text says he was glorified by all. Another translation says everyone praised him. It was, it was going well. It was, a successful, uh, it was a successful launch. It was a successful start for Jesus. At this point, he decides to go home, and, and we're, you know, the spirit led, leads him home is, you know, is very much the implication here. Uh, he decides to go where he grew up. He decides to go back to the little village, and it's just a few hundred people. Nazareth is, was not a big place at the time, uh, just a couple of hundred people, a few hundred people. He goes back to Nazareth where he grew up. I think maps help sometimes. I like maps, and so I'm going to put a map up here of, uh, of of what we're talking about. This is a close-up of just Galilee, so it's not all of Israel. If you can see the scale up there, it's it's just 10 miles per inch or foot or whatever it would be up on the wall. Uh, and, and so this is a, a smallish sort of a region. The thing I wanted us to see and why I put this up here is I wanted folks just to see that location of Nazareth. Nazareth is not on the, get, on the lake. It's not on the Sea of Galilee. It's about 15 miles as the crow flies. Uh, further, if you had to walk it, uh, inland. So it's, it's not down where all the fishing is happening and all those miracles. It's actually up in a, a very hilly, rugged kind of an area. That's where you find Nazareth. And so Jesus, and, and you can see kind of this bluish area, is, is where the text says he was ministering, verses 14 and 15. So he, he makes his way to Nazareth, where, where he grew up. While he's there, he goes to the synagogue where he grew up. And there would have only been one. Nazareth was so small that there wouldn't have been kind of multiple synagogues, like we have multiple churches and a lot of communities. Uh, he goes to the, the synagogue where he had gone hundreds, if not thousands of times before, right? And so that's what uh, we'll pick up with here in verse 16. It says, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. All right, got to stop there and uh, fill in some some detail Uh, so that we understand what's going on here. Because to uh, understand how this, what's happening here, we need to understand a little bit about a a first century synagogue service. Uh, Jesus would have been invited to read. So he doesn't kind of just jump up and say, I'm going to read now. Um, This was an honor, and he he would have been invited by the leaders almost certainly beforehand, you know, maybe immediately before the service. But he would have been invited ahead of time to read. Uh, And and so this is an honor. And and so given that this reputation that precedes him, they would have heard about the things he'd been doing over the last several weeks. And so to honor him and also to kind of hear him out, we'll see, they invite him to read. Uh, Sometimes, uh, and and there's different readings And that's the other thing that's useful to know There was always a reading from the law Which would be the books of Moses, the first five books And there was always a reading from the prophets So one of the prophetic books And there would be some other readings And and when those readings were done There was always some commentary Usually, often, by the reader but, But not always, it wouldn't always have to be that way And so there's the law, there's the prophets, there's some other readings. Jesus has been asked to do the prophets' reading that day. And that's why he's going to read from the prophets. Uh, And the other thing that's interesting to know is that sometimes they might assign your text, but sometimes, as a special honor, you could pick your own text. It just had to be from within the assigned area. And it looks like that's what happens here, because the text says in verse 17, he found the place. Uh, and, and just in between you look at that and you compare it to the other gospels where this account is related it really looks like Jesus picks his text so he asked for and was given the scroll of Isaiah so here's the text he chose now we'll keep reading all right so you got a synagogue service going it's a sabbath day Jesus has prearranged that he wants to read from Isaiah they bring him the Isaiah scroll he finds the passage he wants to read middle of verse 17 Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All right, we'll stop there. Jesus reads from Isaiah, and we know exactly where he read from. He reads from Isaiah 61. So it's Isaiah chapter 61, the first two verses. It's verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 61. Uh, In that passage, so here's what they hear. They hear the narrator, the prophet, makes a statement. And it was understood prophetically as looking ahead, but also of the speaker himself. So the speaker says, the spirit of the Lord is on me and he's anointed me, right? The, the spirit has anointed me to do something. What is it? Proclaim good news. That's the, the, the main verb in that, in, that, um, in that verse, right? To proclaim or preach, some translations say. Either one is a good, uh, a good translation. Preach, proclaim the good news. Uh, It takes uh, four words in English to say preach the good news... In uh, Greek, it's just one word. It's a single word in Greek, uh, and it's—I uh, always have a hard time getting this one out. But it's the word evangelizdo. Evangelizdo. The reason I tell you that is you can hear you can hear evangelism in that. Uh, that's where we get the word evangelism comes straight from. It's to evangelize is to preach the good news. That's literally what evangelize means. And so he uses this word: preach the good news. I have I've been sent by the Spirit to preach the good news, he says. Then the passage tells us what the good news is. You say, okay, what's the good news? Because there's all kinds of good news. It might be a soldier reporting that we won the victory, or maybe it's, you know, low low prices at the supermarket. I mean, what kind of good news are we talking about? He tells us. He goes on. The prophet does. Uh, The good news is salvation. Now, the word salvation isn't used. Instead, it's described. It's salvation. Now, remember, it's an introductory sermon. All of this will be developed as Jesus teaches and preaches in the, God, in the chapters ahead. But what he describes here is salvation, freedom. It's freedom. It's, sight for the, it's freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, deliverance for the oppressed, right? These are all forms of salvation. You think of them literally, they're forms of salvation. You think of them metaphorically, they're all forms of salvation. That's what you have there. So he reads this passage it's a familiar passage. They've probably all heard this passage before. Jesus rolls up the scroll, and what happens next is huge, right? Says so he takes the scroll, he gives it to the attendant. There was a person whose job it was to take care of these scrolls. He gives it to the attendant. He sits down, Luke says. That's significant because it shows he's going to teach now with authority. In the synagogue, you sit, right? We do it the exact opposite. The person we're supposed to listen to stands uh, to to show that that's the person we're supposed to listen to. Uh, In their culture, in the synagogue, the person with authority sits. And so Jesus sits down, he takes the position of authority, and he opens his mouth and he says, and they'd never heard somebody say this about this passage. He opens his mouth and he says, today, this scripture, the one I just read, has been fulfilled in your hearing today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing jesus says when he says that everyone in the building knows what he's saying everyone in the synagogue knows that he's talking about himself they get it they're picking up what he put he put down as they say they understand that he is claiming boldly claiming to be the fulfillment of isaiah 61 He's claiming to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And so the good news isn't just salvation. Look what he's claiming. The good news is salvation through him. The good news is salvation through Jesus. That's that's what he says in this introductory message here in in Nazareth. He is the one who's going to bring what Isaiah described all those hundreds of years before. He's the one who's going to bring deliverance and freedom and eyes that are open and truth and forgiveness and redemption and and the healing that broken people need he's the one who's going to bring it that was the good news you say what is the good news Uh, the good news is salvation through and in jesus that was good news then it's still good news now right it was good news for them it's good news for us uh, it, it's good news for you and me as we, we you know, watch online or, or sit here in this room together. Uh, it's good news. Jesus still offers salvation in all these forms for us. He's still changing. He's saving our souls and then changing our lives for the better. Uh, no matter what you've done or what you're struggling with or, or whatever it is, it, it, what he says there, today is the day of salvation. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is good news for you and me. It's, it's it's salvation through Jesus. It's also good news for others, right? And so we, we remember that idea of mission as well. Uh, a big part of our church's vision is to bring the good news, right? We talk about bringing the good news of Jesus. Um, that certainly includes our, our global partnerships for sure, but, but it's also local, right? We talk about that. This, is, this good news of salvation through Jesus is not just for us who so gather together in this church. It's, it's for our part of Southwest Iowa, right? It's for this, this whole area. It's good news, not just for us but for everybody, just like Jesus brought it, not just for a few people, but but for everyone. So that's question one. That brings us to question two. So what is the good news? It's salvation through Jesus. Now let's look at that other issue of of how human beings are going to respond to it. And so question number two is, who receives the good news? Who receives it? Let's look at the positive side first. Who welcomes it? Who is open to the message of salvation through Jesus Christ? The answer that this text is going to give us is the needy. It's the needy. It's the humble of heart who are able and willing to recognize their need. For short, I'm going to call them the needy, because that's a lot less words to write on your outline. The needy. Who receives the good news? It's the needy. Uh, Jesus calls them the poor in spirit. In the Sermon on the Mount, you could read it there, Matthew chapter 5, the poor in spirit. That's who receives the good news. It's those who see their need before the Lord. This is what we see in the Isaiah passage, right? We're going to see it in two places in today's text. The first is in the quote itself. Look at the list. It's a list of needy people, right? That's who who Jesus announces he'd come to proclaim the good news to. It's, It's the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. What all of those have in common is that they are needy people. They have physical needs, spiritual needs, financial needs in that culture. Uh, There's no safety net in that culture, right? There's no social security or unemployment insurance or policy, you know, disabled uh, ministries and charities and so on for for folks with disabilities. Um, The only safety net in that culture was Family. And if you didn't have family, and many people didn't, which is why being a widow and an orphan was, was, so, was so tragic, uh, if you didn't have family, if you'd been abandoned by them or they'd died, you had nothing at all. And that's the, the picture that's painted here. And so, so it's, it's need. All of those folks in that, in that passage are needy people. Uh, to, to state what, what ought to be obvious, but to state it anyway, when, when Jesus says this, he's not saying that those are the only people God cares about right? You know, physically needy people. Uh, what does John 3 tell us? Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Uh, God, Jesus came for all of humanity. He's willing that none should perish. Uh, God cares about every human being. But when it comes to who's ready for it, when it comes to spiritual openness, what we see, what we see here and what we see a lot of places in scripture is that it's, it's those who recognize their need. Those are the ones who who receive the good news. Jesus is going to reinforce this point. He's going to make the same point in a different way later in the passage. So we'll we'll keep reading. So uh, let's let's kind of watch what happens here. According to verse 22, which is where we'll pick up, uh, there's a mixed reaction to Jesus there in the synagogue. The people have a mixed reaction. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? So it's a mixed reaction. Uh, On the one hand, they're impressed. They spoke well of him, Luke reports. Uh, They marveled at his gracious words. I think the idea there is that they're impressed with his speaking ability. Jesus was a good speaker. They admire his, you know, they know him as Jesus, the guy who puts shelves up and builds foundations for houses and stuff, uh, wow, look, what, look, look, look. He, he speaks so well, too. So they're impressed with him that way. On the other hand, they're also offended. They are offended. You see it at the end of verse 22. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's kid? The, the, the builder's kid? Isn't, isn't that who this is? If you say, well, that doesn't sound offended, uh, all you got to do is compare it to Mark. A lot of times when we study the Gospels, it's helpful, and and we'll do this as we go along. It's helpful to see how the other Gospel writers report on the same incident, because it's all God's Word. It doesn't contradict. It never contradicts. And so Luke tells us about this story. So does Mark. Mark gives us actually a little more, even though Mark's Gospel is shorter. He gives us more on this one. This is Mark 6, verses 2 and 3. Here's what they said according to Mark. Where did this man get these things, they asked? isn't this the carpenter isn't this mary's son and the brother of james joseph judas and simon aren't his sisters here with us and they took offense at him mark says and they took offense at him so they're offended when when they say in luke isn't this the carpenter's son they're offended the idea is who does he think he is who does he think he is So Jesus answers that he he knows they're offended and he answers their offense starting in verse 23, verse 23, he says, and he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb physician heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And so he's anticipating that they're going to do what's done later in the Gospels when they demand signs. So he, he anticipates this kind of faithless demand for a sign. Physician, heal yourself. Do for your own people, your, 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 your own folk, Nazareth, what you've done in these other places. So that, that's what kind of what that means. What we, what, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do it here too. Do it here in your hometown. Verse 24, and he said... the Syrian. We'll stop there because he stops there. So here's what Jesus does. He, he does the thing about it. He, he anticipates their faithless demand for a sign. And then he short circuits it with these two illustrations. And he gives two illustrations of the type of people who will receive the good news. And he knows, and we'll see that they're not these type of people. And so that's why he's not going to do miracles there. Right. So he gives two illustrations. So we're asking the question, who receives the good news? We saw in the quote from the prophet that it's the needy. That's now reinforced here because the answer he gives is absolutely shocking to this audience. It's, it's, It's shocking. The first illustration he gives is the widow of Zarephath widow of Zarephath. You can go read her story. We're not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it. But her story is told in 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 8 through 16. So you could go read 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 8 through 16. The key thing to know that stands out both in 1 Kings and here in the gospel, the key thing to know about this woman is that she is not Jewish. She's not a Jew. She's from Sidon. She's a Gentile. She's a Gentile woman. When Elijah met her, and God sent him, God tells Elijah, if you go read 1 Kings, God tells Elijah to go to this woman. He meets her. She's gathering sticks. She's gathering sticks, and we're told in 1 Kings that she's gathering sticks to make a little fire, and with this fire, she's going to cook her last meal right? Because there's a famine going on. It's been three and a half years, Jesus says. She's down to, she's used it all up. Nobody has anything to sell her. She's, she's got no food left. She's a widow. Her husband isn't there to help her with anything. She's got, she's got this one little boy. And so she's got the enough flour and oil left to make a little bit of bread for her and him. They're going to eat it and then they're going to die. That's her plan that's her plan. Her her five-day plan is die. That's her plan. We're going to die then. However, God has another plan, and that's why he sends Elijah. God has another plan for this woman. Elijah goes to her. He meets her. She explains, I'm going to cook my last meal and die. Elijah tells her, cook that meal and give it to me. Give it to to God's man. Give it to to the prophet, he says. give Give it to me, Elijah, he says. If you do that, and then he tells her, he says, if you do that, God is going to provide for you, right? God's going to cause, and he's, he's going to do a miracle. He's going to cause your oil jug, it's olive oil, and your flour jar, the two basic ingredients for basic food. He's going to cause those to be full, miraculously, until the famine ends. And she did it. It's really amazing, right? We know how the story turned out. If we're familiar with that one, or like I said, you can go read it, but she she does it. She gives, she makes her last meal, and instead of giving it to her son, she gives it to the prophet. Think about that for a second. What is it about her that would make her do that? I mean, she just met Elijah, right? I mean, she just met him. What is it about her that it makes her ready to respond that way? To give the last food she has in the middle of a famine to a stranger. And the answer is, she knows she's needy. She's needy. Like I said, she doesn't have any other plan. Her plan is to die after this. She has no other solution. And so her only hope, her only hope is that God's going to come through the way the prophet just said he's going to come through. As one commentator put it, her blessing was that she was desperately poor and she knew it. She was desperately poor and she knew it. Some people are desperately poor and don't know it. She's desperately poor and she knew it. She couldn't solve her own problems. She knew she couldn't. And so she leaned heavy all the way in on the Lord. Jesus makes the exact same point with a very different sort of a person, this man named Naaman. So His story is condensed. It's there at the end. Uh, the key thing with Naaman is he's also a Gentile he's also a Gentile. That's what he and the widow have in common. Uh, except even worse than her, he's the commander of the army that's trying to destroy Israel. He's, he's a Syrian general, a powerful, important general. Uh, however, this general had a problem. His problem was leprosy, this incurable skin disease. Uh, he, it, it was, and it never stops progressing. And that's what he had. And nothing else he had—his power, his influence, his troops—none of it, none of it, could do anything about his leprosy. His story is told in Second Kings, Second Kings chapter five. Again, you can read it. Uh, in that chapter, it's really the first half of the chapter. Uh, the chapter tells us how this guy Naaman—he has a servant girl who's Jewish. She's heard about the prophet. She says, uh, "Go to the prophet," and he does. He goes. He goes looking for Elisha. He goes and finds Elisha, the successor to Elijah. And, uh, and uh, he sends a messenger to Elisha, and Elisha says, well, here's what you need to do. You need to go dip yourself into the Jordan River. Right? Go, go jump in the lake. as uh, how Naaman uh, experiences it, because he gets mad. Naaman does not like Elisha's advice at all, Uh, you almost get the impression he's ready to start uh, wielding some troops here Uh, he's, he's actually offended and and i think it's because he thinks elisha is trying to humiliate him and embarrass him in front of his troops and so his initial response is to be angry when elisha gives this instruction go dip yourself in the jordan river but then one of his servants and it's very beautiful he listens to this this one of his servants the um the general's servants says to him "Well, we came all this way why not give it a try Right? I mean, we, we came here thinking the prophet could help you if this is what he says to do, why don't you do it? And Naaman humbles himself in front of his troops, in front of the Israelites who were at least secondhand witnesses to this. He humbles himself, he goes to the Jordan River, and it's, it wouldn't have been, there was a little bit of a travel here. He goes to the Jordan River, he goes down into the water, and he comes up, and he's healed. God heals this leprous Gentile of his leprosy. And again, we ask the question, why did Naaman do it? Why did, why did he give in? Why did, why did he do this embarrassing thing that the prophet told him to do? Why does he do it? And the answer, Jesus is saying here, the answer is, is the same reason the widow did what she did. Naaman did it because he knew he had no other options. He'd tried everything else. He'd tried the Syrian gods. He'd tried uh, doctors and what passed for doctors at the time. He'd tried. He'd tried all these other things, and none of it was working. And so he knew, yeah, I'm a powerful general, but I can't help myself on this one. I am needy before the Lord. And so he does. He steps out in faith because he's just completely aware of his need. Jesus offers these two illustrations, and he says to this group in the synagogue, that's what it takes. That's who's going to receive my good news. It takes the humility to say, God, I need you. I need you. I need forgiveness. I need salvation. I need the eternal life that you offer me. And this need doesn't stop with a sinner's prayer, right? It keeps going. Lord, I need help with my life. I need guidance at work. I need help with my business. I need strength in my marriage and wisdom with my children or my parents, depending on what stage of life you're in. I need strength to deal with the physical pain I'm in. I need comfort for my sadness. I need hope in the midst of my anxiety. I need you, I need you, Jesus. That's who receives the good news. It's those who know how needy they are and are willing to admit it to the Lord. Unfortunately, the people of Nazareth were not that type of people, not the ones in that synagogue that day anyway, Uh, because instead of recognizing their own need, they become furious. They become furious at Jesus, which brings us to question number three, and it's the flip side of question number two. Uh, It is who rejects the good news? So we talked about who receives the good news. It's the humble needy. They're in the best position to receive. Who's in the worst position to receive? Who's least open to the good news of Jesus Christ? And, and therefore, really what we're asking is, what is there in myself, or that might be in myself, that I need to deal with? That's really what comes to the surface here. So what is, what is it that causes people to push God away, to reject his salvation altogether, or even as converts sometimes to be resistant to his work in our lives. What is it about us that causes us to reject the good news? And the answer we see in the people of Nazareth is self-righteousness. Who rejects the good news? It's the people who think they're good enough all by themselves. That's what we see with these people. Their response to Jesus is thoroughly self-righteous. You see it, and just kind of we'll recap some of the things we've already talked about. You, You see it in how this unfolds. So at first, they're quite attentive, right? Verse 20 says, their eyes were fixed on him. They, they were ready to give him a hearing. I mean, again, this is a big deal, right? I mean, the, the hometown boys come home, and, and he's, he's kind of a hero now. They're talking about him all throughout Galilee. Let, let's hear him out. Let's, let's, this, is, this is kind of exciting, right? So they're ready to, to give him a hearing. But then he talked, and and they have that mixed reaction, right? We talked about it already. On the one hand, they're impressed with him, uh, but on the other hand, they're offended by him, right? They're impressed with his skills, but they're offended by his presumption. And and, and again, they don't actually use these words, but I think there's a strong uh, dose of who does he think he is hanging over this. Who, who does this guy think he is? Because, I mean, this is this idea of a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. Some of them could remember when Jesus was a little boy. I said it before, you know, I mean, a lot of our towns around here are small towns. Uh, you know, this, this is even smaller, right? Nazareth is, you know, 300, 400, maybe 500 people. They all know each other. They remembered Jesus as a little boy playing in the streets. Many of the people in that synagogue had grown up with him, sat next to him when they were learning how to read. Uh, Some of them had probably hired him to do work for them as a carpenter. The point is they knew him personally. And so when Jesus announces, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, they just can't accept it. They, They can't bring themselves to a place where they can see that they need anything from Jesus. How can they need anything from Jesus? They know they know Jesus. But where it really gets bad, where you really see the self-righteousness, is is in their response to the history lesson, right, or the theological history lesson. Uh, Jesus reminds them of Naaman and of the widow of Zarephath, and and you 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 see their self-righteousness in their response because they, they get what he's saying. They understand his point. They understand that he is comparing them unfavorably with two gentiles which and if they look down on the gentiles spiritually right yeah the gentiles may be oppressing us but at least we are better than they are spiritually jesus comes in and he takes two gentiles two kind of you know one is a, a widow from sidon which was a historic enemy of israel but then even more so naaman this general of of syria and and he he says these two gentiles know more about how to please god than you do that's what he says that really makes them mad It makes them really angry. How dare he say something like that? How dare he say that those Gentiles were more righteous than they are? I actually like how uh, Kent Hughes describes this. Kent uh, Hughes was a pastor who wrote uh, some commentaries too, pretty academic guy, and he wrote a a two-volume commentary on Luke I like to use. Uh, Here's his summary of what happens here. Uh, Quote, the fine citizens of Nazareth had heard enough it was bad enough to be told they were poor and blind and captive and oppressed, but now to be told that they were less spiritual and less wise than the Gentiles, that was just too much, unquote. See, their problem, what's the heart of self-righteousness? Their problem is that they refuse to see themselves the way God sees them. They had the law of Moses. They had, you know, their heritage, their children of Abraham. As far as they're concerned, they don't need anything Jesus has to offer. They don't need anything from him we then see where that leads. You say, okay, what is, you know, where does self-righteousness lead? You see where it goes in what they do next. So now the last part of the passage, starting in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill, you know, the, the cusp of the edge of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. They form a mob, right? I've never had that reaction to a sermon. They form a mob. Their worship service turns into an angry mob. Uh, and this mob drags them out of the synagogue. And Luke says they, they bring them out of the town to the top of the hill on which their town was built. And so Nazareth is in hill, hill country there in, in Galilee. You could maybe see that from that map I put up before. We'll look at it again another time. Um, and, but then there's this hill that's up a, just above it. And they bring him to the top of this, this cliff, and they're gonna throw him down. That's what this mob plans to do. Uh, we actually know where this happened, or at least where tradition says it happened. You're never 100% sure about some of these traditions, but I've, I've got a few pictures here, which I thought would just be interesting to get a feel for this. Um, it's called the Mount of Mount Precipice, or sometimes the Mount of Precipitation, because he'd be thrown over. And so I, I have three pictures here. This first one is an aerial view looking down on it. So you're kind of like, oh, that's not so impressive. Um, the hill part would be down this way. Uh, it's actually a tourist site. You, you can visit it. That's why you see a tour bus down here, and you can go and you can stand on the edge where, uh, where Jesus uh, would have been thrown down. Uh, again, down here's the down part. Um, these next two pictures give you a little better feel. Uh, here is a, a view from the west, looking at it from the side, basically. But this one's the best one. This is standing down below the cliff, looking up it. And for scale... Oh, this, this, uh, the perspective here, you can't quite see them, but up here where my words are are some little little uh, dashes. Those dashes are people. And so that gives you a sense of the scale here. So if you're like, you know, that doesn't look that bad. You know, I went to Colorado. Yeah, no, it's not Colorado, but uh, it's, it's enough to kill a guy if you fall down that cliff. And that's where they take him. This mob brings Jesus to the top of that cliff or a cliff a lot like it and is prepared to shove him down. It's only chapter four, and they're already trying to kill him, right? We asked the question, how are people going to respond to the good news of Jesus? It's only chapter four, and they're already trying to kill him. And these are his friends, right? These are, these are you know, some of his former playmates, his neighbors, people he grew up with, maybe even a few relatives mixed in there. That's what self-righteousness looks like. That's, how, uh, that's where it leads to a complete rejection of Jesus. They didn't succeed, of course. Uh, It wasn't time yet for Jesus to die. That comes much later. This is only the beginning. Uh, Instead, Luke tells us uh, in this kind of enigmatic phrase, uh, he passed through their midst and uh, and went away. Passing through their midst, he went away. It's not clear if this was a miracle, right? There's one possibility. Is, is, is there sort of a miracle here, sort of a miracle, a miracle here? Uh, it's also entirely possible it's just on his own commanding presence. Uh, you know, maybe he gave him the eye or something, and they kind of thought better of it and parted and let him go. It could be either one. I think Luke and none of the other gospel writers bother to tell us because what they really want us to focus on is the response. They want us to see where self-righteousness leads. It leads to this violent rejection of Jesus. They were so sure they were right. They were so sure of their own goodness. They were so sure of themselves that they were sure they didn't need Jesus. I was in a a prayer group uh, several years years ago now with uh, some other pastors. And uh, one time, I still remember this, one time one of them was sharing about a woman that he'd been witnessing to, someone who kind of was connected to his church. I don't think she regularly went to his church. But uh, he'd been witnessing to this woman. And in the course of the conversation, he said, he had brought up sin. He was trying to help her think through sin. And so he said, you know, well, what about your sin? And, And to his surprise, this woman insisted she didn't have any sin. She said, I'm I'm I don't have any sin for God to forgive." She said, and uh, and so again, you tell a pastor this, he's it's, you're like, what? And he, so he asked me, he said, what, what, "What's a sinner to you? What is what is? What, give me your definition of a sinner." And her answer was that a sinner is someone who goes to jail. A, a sinner is someone who's committed a crime. I've never committed a crime. I've never been in jail. And so she said, "I'm not a sinner." And, and he told us she wasn't kidding right? She, she wasn't being flippant. She wasn't being argumentative. She was very sincere. She was an older woman, he said. And she just didn't see. She didn't see where she had any need for Jesus. She wasn't even angry, right? She wasn't angry like the folks in Nazareth, but she was in the same place they were. Just like them, she was absolutely certain of her own goodness. And that self-righteousness, it didn't have a happy ending, at least back then. I don't know, maybe later the Lord did something. But that day anyway, her self-righteousness kept her from Jesus. Uh, I said earlier that there are uh, three questions in this passage, right? Three questions this passage answers. There's actually a fourth question in this passage, and this is one that the passage expects us to answer ourselves. The passage doesn't answer this question for us because the fourth question we're supposed to ask with this passage is, which one am I? Which one are you? Which one are we? Uh, Are we among, we're given these two choices, are we among those who recognize their need and receive the good news, or are we among those who refuse to see their need and reject it? Which one are my? Which one are you? I mentioned uh, Kent Hughes before. Uh, In that commentary I was reading, he tells a story. And uh, I've seen different versions of of different stories like this one, but I like Hughes' version. Uh, It's the story of a judge, it's the story of a judge. And this judge was a Christian. He's a believer. And he was involved. This is kind of one of those history stories. This is like 150 years ago, something like that. Uh, he was involved in a large city church. And it was a good church. It just drew people from all walks of life, all kinds of people, and it preached the gospel. And so uh, one Sunday, he was in worship, and uh, it came time to take communion. And it was one of those more traditional churches where they have a, a rail, a communion rail. And so he went down to an Anglican church or something like that. I'm not sure. But but he went down to receive communion at the communion rail. And he found a spot where he was going to be able to kneel. And just as he was about to kneel down there at the rail, he realized he recognized the man who was already there. There was a man right next to the spot where he was going to go. He recognized him because that man was a thief. He was a thief who he himself, the judge, had sentenced in his own court several years before. The man had served his time, he'd gone to prison, he'd served his time, Uh, and somewhere in there, somewhere along the way, he had come to Christ. This this former thief had converted to Christ, and now here they were, worshiping in the same church. The judge kneeled down next to him, took communion, and side by side, the judge and the thief uh, sentenced the former thief, uh, took communion together. Afterwards, on his way out, the judge told the pastor, you know, went up to the pastor and explained to him what had just happened. He explained to him the man uh, who he'd been kneeling next to and who he was. And uh, and then he says to the pastor, what a what a miracle of grace. And the pastor, you know, sometimes we don't know what to say to these things. He kind of smiled and nodded. And and then the judge said, no, I, I don't mean the former convict. I mean myself. Seeing the pastor's surprise, he explained It's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. It was clear to him how much he needed Jesus. But look at me. I was taught from infancy how to live as a gentleman, that my word was my bond, that I was to say my prayers and go to church. I obtained my degrees, was called to the bar, eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact... I, too, was a sinner. Pastor, he concluded, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive God. I am the greater miracle. Maybe your life has been more like that. Judges, maybe it's been more like the thieves. Either way, you need Jesus because we all need Jesus. I need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Whether we admit it or not, we all need that good news that Jesus came to proclaim salvation through him.